Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash. This week marked the first report of the Census of Marine Life. This has been a worldwide project spanning the last 10 years aiming to catalogue the diversity, distribution and abundance of life in the oceans. I went along to the launch of the census report in London and spoke to marine ecologist Enric Sala. Well, today was a celebration of 10 years of great work. 2,700 people from 80 different countries who have worked their beep off for 10 years. This project has completely transformed our vision of the ocean. So right now we know that there are far more species than we thought, that the ocean life is more connected than we thought, but also that it's more impacted by human activities than we thought 10 years ago. That was Enric Sala, who acted as a compare for all the talks and discussions throughout the day of the launch and was also involved in looking back at fish populations of the past for the survey. As Enric said, this was a global effort. Researchers went out and collected samples, took photographs and measurements from all types of marine ecosystem, from tropical mangroves to under the sea ice in Antarctica to abyssal plains and ocean trenches out to the open ocean to try and get an idea of what species were living in each area. During the census, they found 6,000 potential new species and have pushed up the estimate for total marine species to over 250,000. One of the methods pioneered by the census was DNA barcoding, which allows you to take a sample from an ecosystem and identify all the animals present. Anne Bucklin is from the University of Connecticut. The way the census has started barcoding is what we call gold standard barcoding. And so we work from an identified specimen and we determine a sequence. And so now we have a gold standard. We have a DNA sequence with a name on it. So overall, 35,000 species of marine organisms, marine animals, have been barcoded. Now what we're starting to do is to take that scoop of animals, whether it's a net sample of plankton, a scoop of sediment, any kind of habitat that you could name, and we're doing deep sequencing with a new high-throughput sequencing to tell us how many species we think are in that sample. Some of those will match our library of gold standard barcodes. Some will not, but some will be close enough so that we can classify. So we say, we don't know what copepod that is, but we know it's a copepod. And so that's the power of what we call environmental barcoding. Anne Bucklin there. In terms of the distribution of species, researchers used a range of tracking methods, including satellites and acoustic techniques, to find out where, when and how far species travel. The tracking studies, as well as looking at the genetics in different areas, led the census to conclude that ecosystems and marine species are much more interconnected than we thought, which really has important implications for conservation. Looking at abundance, this is where it becomes a much less positive story. The census estimates that 90% of top marine predators like tuna, marlin and sharks have been lost in the last 50 years alone due to over-exploitation and habitat loss. And looking much further back, they found that humans have been impacting fish populations for much longer than we previously thought, certainly back at least 2,000 years. 
But the census isn't just an interesting piece of zoological and ecological information. It could also act as a guide to inform conservation efforts and the guide to policymakers, as maritime lawyer turned ocean conservation advisor Christina Jurdy explains. Bringing the high seas, the oceans, into the living room will help to stir some concern about what is the state of the ocean these days and if that concern can be translated to our policymakers, that's in their capitals, in our um, hometowns, then we would start to see some action. That was Christina Jurdy talking to me at the Royal Institution in London. And if you'd like to hear more about the census of marine life, this month's Naked Oceans podcast that you can download at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans will be all about the census and that will be out on Thursday the 14th of October. Certainly a uh, carpaceous study that was done there, Sarah. Thank you very much. Well, also this week, uh, researchers have made another interesting finding in regard to what actually happens when a person puts on a bit too much weight. Now, not all fat-storing cells, which are known as adipocytes, are equal, it seems. And from the Mayo Clinic, to tell us more, Michael Jensen. We were trying to understand why when some people uh, gain weight, they gain it in their hips and thighs, which seems to protect from cardiovascular disease, and other people tend to gain it in their abdominal area, which seems to put them at higher risk. So, in other words, this is the apples and pears analogy, isn't it? People who are very apple-shaped, they put all the weight on around the middle, have a very different risk of, of being overweight than people who put the weight on around the bum. Yeah, that's what we were trying to find out, is there's something we can measure before you even gain weight that will predict where you're going to gain that weight. So we asked about uh, 28 people who were normal weight, who had never been overweight, and who were completely healthy to undergo some initial tests, including some fat biopsies, and then to really overeat for about eight weeks to try to gain about uh, four kilograms. And then the idea is to measure where they gained the fat and then to repeat the fat biopsies and see what had changed about their fat tissue. So by looking in the different zones of the body, you're asking, do the fat cells change equivalently in the different anatomical zones, the abdomen versus uh, around your hips, for example, I guess to find out whether the cells there are behaving equivalently? Yes, but also to see uh, how they behave with regards to how much fat has gained in that area. So what we found is that the people who, when they gain weight in their abdomen, they gain it primarily by their fat cells getting bigger. When people gain weight in their hip and thigh area, their fat cells don't get bigger. They make more fat cells so that they keep their fat cell size on average staying about the same. So the implication is if you're putting weight on in the hip and thigh area, it's because you're creating new fat cells. But that flies in the face of what I guess doctors have been learning at medical school for many years, which is that after a certain age, you don't make any more fat cells. You just get fatter by making the ones you have got get bigger. That's right, and so that was what was so striking to us, is it completely overturned everything we'd been taught. Okay, so you've got this interesting finding. People put on increased numbers of cells around their hips. They have increasing size of cells in the abdomen. Where next? Where does this leave us? Well, the other thing we found is that the people who did make more cells in the thighs were less likely to gain weight in the abdomen, um, suggesting that it, it may be the ability to create new fat cells in the hip and thigh area is one thing that might protect you from 
getting bigger cells in the abdominal area. In other words, it's a sort of sequestration process. If you're making new cells in your hips, you're not putting the fat around your middle, which is the fat we know is associated with ill health. Exactly. Sort of the good news, bad news story. The bad news is you're making more fat cells, which most people wouldn't want to do. The good news is that those fat cells are doing exactly the job you want them to do. They're having the fat stored benignly inside fat cells rather than going into bigger fat cells or worse yet, going into organs like liver and muscle where the fat can can cause some insulin resistance. So does this mean that one way we could tackle obesity, and not just obesity, the linked condition diabetes, which is of course much more common in people who gain too much weight, if we could find what is causing those cells to behave differently in those two areas, and then in people who have a a tendency to put weight on around the middle, we could make the fat instead be directed towards this less unhealthy distribution around the hips, then we might have a way of reducing the risk of someone going on to develop an obesity-linked disorder or disease. Yes, that's exactly right. That's what we're, we're hoping is that it to, even if we can't prevent people from becoming obese, which it doesn't seem we're having very good luck, if we could at least prevent them from becoming ill as a result of the weight gain, that would be at least some accomplishment. How close are you to being able to realize that, to being able to work out what is causing these cells to behave differently, not just in different bits of the body, but in different people? Uh, not as close as I would like to be, I'm afraid. I think the the next steps are to begin looking much more closely at the preadipocytes, the precursors to fat cells in the different depots, and specifically in people who who we know already have gained uh, weight preferentially in the hip and thigh area versus those who are not able to, and and look to see what is it about those cells that are differently, and not just the mature adipocytes, but the pre-adipocytes. Certainly food for thought, isn't it? That was Michael Jensen, who is from the Mayo Clinic, and that work was published this week in the journal PNAS. Sarah? Well, I guess I just need to hope that if I put on weight, I put it on in the right places. Really interesting stuff. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now, Chris, I don't know if you've ever heard of rafflesia. It it sounds like some kind of... aftershave or something? (laughs) Well, it's one of the biggest flowers in the world. It's it's found in the tropics and it attracts flies to itself to pollinate it by releasing the rather gross smell of rotting meat. Sounds nice. Yeah, lovely. And this week, researchers led by Johannes Stockel have published a paper in Current Biology describing another flower that uses an unusual smell to attract its pollinators. It's called the Solomon's lily, and it's a member of the Arum genus, which also contains the largest flower in the world, which is called the Titan Arum. And it releases a sweet smell that mimics rotting or fermenting fruit to attract drosophilid fruit flies. This lily uses what is known as deceptive pollination to trick the flies into pollinating it. I mean, most flowers attract their pollinators like insects, birds, bats, that sort of thing, with some sort of reward like a sweet sugary nectar. The pollinator visits the flower and in the process of feeding on the nectar, pollen gets transferred to them that they then transfer to another plant. But obviously it's quite costly to the plant to produce the sweet nectar, so some plants trick their pollinators into pollinating them without giving them a reward. 
They release smells that are similar to the food source or the breeding place of the insect, or sometimes they even mimic the pheromones of the female insects to attract the male ones. And that's what this lily does. It mimics the smell of something that attracts the fruit flies. So what the researchers did is that they analysed the volatile compounds released by the lily using gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. And they found that six of the 13 compounds that make up the smell are also found in rotting fruit and fermentation products like vinegar and wine. And they're also very attractive to these fruit flies. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that the lily has... I suppose it's not amazing, really, because it's, it works, but it's incredible to think the lily has evolved to make the same odours or odours that smell like the ones that the flies like. Well, it's really interesting because it's almost like the flower has evolved to exploit these particular fly smell centres. And something else that the, the research showed was that they did some functional imaging of the fly smell centre, the antennal lobe, and they found that the compounds released by the lily activate the same parts of the antennal lobe, which is a bit like the olfactory bulb in our brains, as the smells of rotting fruit. So the lily is actually exploiting the fact that these flies have evolved to be very sensitive to these particular compounds in order to attract them. So I suppose it's kind of interesting in two ways, from an evolutionary point of view that the flower has evolved to so closely mimic the smell of the rotting fruit, and also from the point of view that it's helped to shed a bit more light on the way the fruit fly brain works and responds to particular smells. Indeed. I still think it's funny to think about the concept of a fly brain, because it really is quite small. <laughs> now, I have a question for you. Um, have you heard this statement, horses sweat, men perspire, women glow, which is what you did when you walked into the studio because it's about 5,000 degrees in here. <laughs> uh, I've heard it, but uh, I'm not sure it's true in my case, unfortunately. Well, I was hoping you were going to tell me where it came from, actually, because I can't find, I was just poking around over the weekend looking for where this reference comes from. I can't find who said that in the first place, but that's really by the by. It's actually true, though, because a group of researchers at uh, Osaka International University in Japan, this is Yoshimoto Inua and his colleagues, they've got a paper out this week in which they have found, um, and they published this in Experimental Physiology, that men indeed do sweat more than women do. So what they did was recruited 37 individuals, and this was a mixture of trained men and women, and also untrained men and women, and they asked them to do a fairly rigorous exercise regime that lasted an hour, and they had to exercise at, starting at about 35% and building up to 60% of their maximum exercise tolerance during this exercise regime. So this was a pretty harsh workout, and it got the people sweating, and they measured how many sweat glands these people had on patches of their skin, and they also measured how much sweat was coming out. And what they found is that men always at any intensity of exercise will sweat more than women they found that they also found that if a person trains both male or female training increases your ability to sweat so when you're trained for any given temperature or exertion you will sweat more so it increases the efficiency of sweating but even a very highly trained woman will never be able to sweat as much as a man. So for a start, wives and girlfriends are absolutely right when they accuse us blokes of being sweaty. We've got no defence whatsoever now, but the other important thing here is that from an evolutionary point of view, this is informative, because they think, this group of researchers, that women probably have evolved to sweat less than men, because as a proportion of their body weight, women have less water on board. Therefore, water is more precious to women, men have relatively more water, therefore they can afford to lose more water, and therefore men have slightly better heat tolerance, because they can sweat more to control control their temperature. Therefore, that probably explains why men are more physically active and, and will do things with a higher physical load on them. The other point to bear in mind, 
is men have more testosterone, and testosterone seems to drive the activity of sweat glands. Women have less testosterone than men, so they have less active sweat glands. And when you take exercise, it boosts up the testosterone level, which increases your sweat gland activity, including in women. But because women are always going to have a bit less than men, that's why you're seeing slightly lower levels in the women than in the men. So there you go. It proves horses they didn't test them, but men really do perspire, and women. Really do glow. It seems. The Naked Scientist Newsflash: Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.